Thank you so much. It's great to be back with you again, especially at this Christmas season, and uh, to just join in your worship and experience the Lord's presence amongst us. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I do pray I can be a blessing to you as we open the Bible in a moment. Uh, just to mention the books that uh, have just been referred to, um, yeah, the theme of grace has been something that we've been associated with. We've uh, preached on grace, and there's a book called God's Lavish Grace, which is uh, a book that's been translated, as it happens, into many languages. And uh, recently I heard from uh, Serbia. Can they please translate it? Uh, I was in Poland not so long ago, where it's recently been uh, translated into Polish, uh, which is probably the most Roman Catholic country in the world. And it was, so it was great to get a good grace message in there as we think of the rediscovery of grace that came through Luther and so on. Uh, so uh, while I was there, it was thrilling because they asked, uh, I would do some book signing and was doing that. And one guy came up and had this huge smile on his face. And he said, he said, you don't have to sign my copy. He said, I bought it three weeks ago. It's written in my heart. And I thought, whoa, hallelujah. So uh, I just uh, commend that to you. I, I honestly have a number of letters at home, people saying it changed their lives. So I just commend that to you. And there are one or two books by Wendy, her most recent one called His Strong Hand. Uh, the publishers asked her to write a book that uh, could be on a coffee table or by your bedside. And you may think, oh, I'm not really a reader much. Well, this is ideal. Um, it's like every chapter is only like two or three pages. It's just a brief meditation on a number of themes. And uh, she's a really skillful writer. So I know when I first had it put on my desk, I, I couldn't stop reading chapter after chapter. It's really, I think, superb. So uh, books like, uh, um, chapters like, yeah, Grace is Amazing, A Daughter's Decision, In Praise of Older Women, A Covered Bridge, Through the Curtain, Wedding Anniversaries, Notes on Worship, Babies, Daffodils and Other Smells, <laughs> Rugby for Grandmas. I mean, it's fun. Uh, lots of lovely stories and experiences of God in everyday life. And you'll find it refreshing and encouraging. So I commend that to you. It's a great book for Christmas gift. Yeah? So there's some books at the table. Please take advantage of that uh, at the end of the meeting. Right, we're going to be looking at Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And this season of the year has uh, kind of dictated where I've gone. We're very much thinking of this occasion of the coming of Jesus. So I'm reading from Galatians 4, and I'm going to read just a few verses from verse 4 through verse 7. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father, we thank you so much that we are invited to call the Most High God Father, this extraordinary privilege. Lord, we, we, we just filled with wonder that you're our Father, that you care for us, that you know our situations. And Father, we do thank you for your promise that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. And that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father 
Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So we're asking you, Father, right now, for the Holy Spirit to come rest upon us, please. May we hear the voice of God. May we engage with you, Holy Spirit. Please be our teacher, we do pray, Lord. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So obviously we're into this Christmas season, which uh, for most of us is almost overtaken by all kinds of commercial preoccupations, the uh, things we have to buy, get ready, get the tree ready, get the stockings filled, get all the kind of stuff that has to be done. Uh, kind of, kind of uh, almost obscure what it's all about, really. And then even for us who know the gospel stories, we can be focused on a kind of little baby in a stable and be looking at the minutiae, uh, the, uh, the shepherds and so on. This passage kind of lifts it above all that and, and paints the picture of Christmas, if you like, the coming of Jesus on a, a very grand scale. It's a phenomenal little passage, which I must confess I love to look at. And uh, it says, first of all, when the time had fully come, or in the fullness of time, or when the time was fulfilled, right? So what it's saying from the outset is that God is over time. God is sovereign in history. And even that's important for us to remember, that the coming of Christ was in his moment, his time, forever. It's drawn a line between what is BC and what is AD. I've just been reading about the French Revolution recently when they tried to start all over again. And they said, right, this is year one uh, at the end of the French, uh, in the midst of the French Revolution. That lasted like for seven years and it mm, faded away. Uh, now we know that we date the whole of world history from the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this year is. It's a year following the coming of Christ. When God said the time has fully come, when the, the moment was ready in God's time, not like he, he took opportunity because, oh, look, this looks like a good time. No, in his sovereign purpose, all the preparations, all the promises, all the old prophecies saying that one would come, now's the moment. Now's the moment. God is breaking in on human history in his son. And the time has fully come. The moment has arrived. And that should encourage us that because so often you can think, hey, the world's kind of running out. It's kind of, we're in danger. Is it the ozone layer's breaking up? Climate control's gone. And what's happening? The economy's all over the place. And what's happening in world politics and these great nations and these great figures? And we can sometimes think it's out of control. But the Bible's saying, no, no, that isn't the case at all. That God is sovereign. God has his moments when he does hugely significant things. And when Jesus came on the scene, he said, the time has come. The kingdom is here. The moment has arrived. It says similar words on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. When it had full... See, the day of Pentecost was prepared for in the Old Testament. It was a Jewish event where it was like a harvest festival, and it was also the celebration that the law had been given. So they already kept the Pentecost, the, the Feast of Pentecost. It's why Jerusalem was filled with thousands of people. But when it was fulfilled, when, it was, when God's actual historic moment came for pouring out his spirit, that, that, that day is fulfilled. It's like God's got it already in his calendar. Now it's here. Now it's here. When the angels filled the skies, when Jesus was born, right, it's God's moment. When God said the time is right, 
And it's so important for us because we know that there's going to be a day when Jesus will come again. And the glory won't just be over one field. It'll be glory over the whole earth. Every eye will see him. And the, the whole of history is building for that time. God has history in his hands. It's important for us to know that. And that's what's being uh, referred to here. When the time had fully come, God acted. Now, it's interesting to see how the stage was prepared. The time when Jesus came and the gospel broke out and the first apostles began to take the good news of Jesus, for some time, the Greeks had ruled the Middle East. So there was one language. The Greek language was being spoken from nation after nation after nation after nation. It was a great time for the gospel to run. Great time to go internationally. But after them had come the Romans. They had imposed what they called Pax Romana, which just means you're under our authority. But it means there was no customs control between nation after nation. They built the Roman roads, which made travel more possible than ever before. Preparations for this outbreak of great truth. And then even what's called the diaspora, which is the Jewish people had been conquered and scattered. And when they were scattered, they were in nation after nation after nation. And when they got there, of course, there's no temple. The temple's at Jerusalem. Even the temple was destroyed in AD 70. What did they do? Well, they said, we must gather to our sacred writings. And so at that time, they established synagogues all over the Middle East, all around nation after nation. When the Apostle Paul went with the gospel, when this time had come, he'd go to a town, he'd look for the synagogue. In other words, there will be a number of people who are looking for the coming of the Savior, who are honoring the Old Testament scriptures. There's like a foothold. Every time he went to a city, he could get on some turf. These people believe this. And he would start there. Now, sometimes they would reject him. Other times they would receive him. But it was like there was a foothold in city after city after city. So God had given them one language. He'd given them roads. He'd given them peace. He'd given them people in every city who were somewhat ready to hear this good news. The time had come. God had prepared the scene for when Jesus came. When Jesus came, all kinds of stuff had been done in the background to get us ready. In the time, and a lot of that stuff looked very negative. When the Greeks came, they imposed their style. They imposed the gymnasium. They imposed the, 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 the stage and all kinds of cultural things that the Jews hated. But they had made a common way of thinking. They'd opened the doors and God used it in his purpose. Sometimes things that look terribly negative behind them, God is acting in ways you wouldn't expect. And the Romans were fierce people, cruel but they built roads, and they built a, a kind of peace which sometimes Paul appealed to. So I appealed to Rome. Wow, some justice will come into this situation. The scene was set. In the time when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. Now, this is unique. We know that, it says in Hebrews, God spoke in the past in many ways. Through many prophets, ordinary people suddenly find they've encountered God. And they speak on his behalf, men like Jeremiah, Elijah, Isaiah. They bring revelations of God. They're, they're hearing from God. They're speaking for God. We know of Moses. He suddenly saw a bush that's burning and glowing with glory. He approaches it, and God speaks to it. God had visited the planet. 
kind of brief visits. There'd be these moments where heaven opened and God came and spoke to people. When Isaiah saw God, he's absolutely overwhelmed. Isaiah saw the Lord. And other people had encounters with God, but this is new. This is new. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. This is breathtaking, dramatic. This isn't just a visit of a prophet. This isn't just a bush that's glowing with glory. This is God himself. The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. Became. Became. Not visited, became. That massive, that wonderful passage from Philippians 2 we were looking at earlier in the meeting. He, he took on human form. Our God became a human being. It's breathtaking and extraordinary. It's not a fleeting visit. He was born of a woman, became flesh, so that God could be seen. The apostles wrote later, the life was manifested. We handled and touched. It's like we touched God. We were that close to God. God was revealed. Jesus said this, he that has seen me has seen the Father. He was the exact representation of God. This is the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. God the Son has come to save, come to rescue, come to do this phenomenal thing, come to break in on human history, became flesh. Now we know that Joseph and Mary are told, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. God who saves, that's what his name means. Jesus, Joshua, Jesus. God who saves. But in this passage, there's a different emphasis. It says he came to redeem those who are under the law. He was born of a woman. Now, born, he says, under the law. That he might redeem those who were under the law, that we too might become sons. Now, this is a fantastic passage. It's got so many wonderful truths in it. I want to, I want to, with God's help, underline every one of them. He came, he was born under the law to redeem us from being under the law. Now, I just need to back up and remind you what this letter is all about. We're just taking out a few verses from an epistle, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one church called Galatia. May have been a number of house churches, but in that area, it was the church in Galatia. And Paul is writing to them. And actually, it's his kind of angriest letter. In fact, much angrier than his letter to Corinth, where Corinth was in a real mess. Uh, all sorts of horrible things happening in the church at Corinth. But the church of Galatia, he uses even more dramatic language. He says, you are deserting the one who called you. He says, you're falling from grace. You're severed from Christ. He says, you're bewitched. I, this is, these are very dramatic phrases. If you read the book of Galatians, and I've been working right through it in these last few months, just studying, studying it, looking at it. He's really furious. Why? Well, what happened was this. Paul has been to this place and preached the gospel. As an apostle, he's come. Many people have become Christians. Many people have turned to Christ. They've understood. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit, says so plainly in Galatians chapter 3. Miracles are happening among them. This is, this is a people full of the Holy Spirit. They, are, they have 
uh, enjoyed all that the gospel's meant to bring. Sins are forgiven, God's among them, Holy Spirit's present, amazing signs and wonders are happening. Wonderful. Paul's done his job. Here's a church he's brought to birth. Wasn't there? Now it's there. These are Gentiles who never knew anything about God. Paul has gone in, told them about Jesus. They've received it. They've celebrated it. God's come among them. Then Paul, being an apostle, goes on to another town to do it again. He's not a local pastor. He's, he's called to be an apostle. He's a sent one. He's going to go to another town, another town. But when he's traveled on, what becomes clear is this, that some, what the Bible calls Judaizers, what it is that these people who were Jewish people and have become Christian people, when they saw the Messiah, they received him, and they had come in behind Paul into this church that he'd now left. He's moved on. They've moved in. And they say things like this. Hey, it's great. You, you Gentile people, you've received our Messiah. This is great. This is, what our, this is what our Old Testament prophet said would happen. He said that the Gentiles would come. This is great. Well done. We're, welcome. Welcome. You've come to our God. Um, but if you really want to press on to know him, and if you really, you know, if you're going to live properly, uh, you know, we've known him for centuries. There's some stuff you do need to add. Uh, you do need to keep the Sabbath. Uh, you do need to um, not eat that kind of food. That food you've never been allowed to. Don't eat that sort of food. Uh, but do keep the feast days. And you need to get circumcised. And what they do is they say, look, if you're going to be really accepted... There are these rules we need to add. There's some things you have to do. There's some laws you need to keep. Otherwise, well, you've got in, but whoa, you're not really safe yet. You need to make sure you're safe by keeping all these rules, observing all these regulations. Now, we might feel, well, that's all old history. It's not relevant to us. But you know, it's funny. It can, that kind of thing can creep into our modern church life. It'll look a bit different, but it's got the same feel. It's like, is Jesus really enough? Is what he did, does that really cover it? Or are some things you need to add to make sure? And if we're not careful, what we can do is we slip into a kind of rule-keeping Christianity. And that, even, that can even become the biggest thing, as it was for these. It's like, okay, you've got Jesus, but you know, it's not like Jesus is enough. You need all this other stuff as well. And they began to add all these other things. And, and Jesus begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller. as making sure you've done these things. It becomes more and more important. And I think that's what happened to me when I got converted. I, I thought, yes, thank you, Lord, I've become a Christian. And then someone says to you, um, uh, you know, these are some things you must do. Some things you must do. Um, you know, you must read your Bible every day. You, you must do it. And you must pray. And you must... You must, uh, I shouldn't wear those kind of clothes. I wouldn't do your hair like that. And, you know, all sorts of funny things. They don't do this and don't do this. All sorts of rules. I know when I first became a Christian, I thought, what are these rules I have to keep? Where are these rules? I mean, I've traveled quite a bit, and some of the rules are different in different places. <laughs> so I preached in Armenia to a big pastor's conference, about 500 pastors. They're all very smartly dressed in suits, but no one's got a tie on. They're smart suits, but no ties. So I said, uh, what's the deal? You know, what, these guys are very smart, but no ties. What's the deal? Oh, ties are self-conscious. They, they bring attention to you. So 
You don't, if you're a good Christian, you don't wear a tie. <laughs> okay, so that, yeah, that's it. Whew, no, because tie, and also they said this, the tie points downwards. <laughs> that's what they said, literally, that's what they said. So, oh, so you don't wear, so none of these, I looked all around, none of them wearing a tie. Then I'm preaching, later on, I'm preaching in Bloemfontein in South, in South Africa, and we've had a week, and it's been good. It's had a week of ministry, a conference. Pastors there, and it's all it's, oh, terrific heat. It's like 33 degrees, and it's ridiculous heat. And, and people are in shorts and sandals and uh, half sleeve shirts, and you know, it was just turning up at the meetings. And, uh, and coming up to the Sunday, and I'm having breakfast in this, I'm staying in the pastor's home. And uh, <laughs> at breakfast, he's sitting there in a vest and shorts. So we're having breakfast together. I said, what time are we leaving? Oh, 20 minutes, okay. So 20 minutes, I'm ready at the door. And he's sitting in his car outside. I run out to and he's got a three-piece suit, waistcoat, jacket, tie. And I, I, oh, and I, so I said, is this all right? I'm just dressed like I have been all week, you know, open shirt and short sleeves. And, and he said, I have never, ever addressed my people without wearing a tie. I said, okay. I rushed back in and put my tie and jacket on. And you, think, you think, it's weird. In this nation, wearing a tie is out. In this nation, I've never addressed my people without... Who makes up these rules? It's like a minefield. What are you allowed to do? I was once, when I was a young Christian, I was going to church. I had, I had a Lambretta scooter. And I'm stopped at the petrol station, and I'm putting some petrol in my car, in my bike. And a lady walks by, and it's quite a big church, uh, about 600 people on a Sunday, sometimes 800. And uh, I didn't know this lady, but she obviously knew me. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, good morning. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm putting petrol in my motorbike. She said, don't you know it's the Sabbath? <laughs> um, uh, you know, but it's very selective because she's thinking you mustn't put petrol in your car on the Sabbath. But she's walking to church, which actually, if you still obey the Old Testament laws, she's walking further than the law required. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so it's all very selective. You've got to keep this rule, that rule, this rule. Which rules? Well, the ones that we have said are the ones we're going to keep. And it becomes kind of an imposed thing. And that's what was happening. Now, this is the earliest and the, uh, 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 that we get of this in the Bible. Paul, I'm working through Philippians myself now. I just read the Philippians passage where Paul is saying, they're trying to make you, they're dealing with the same issue, trying to produce holiness based on law instead of on what Jesus has done for us. So Jesus died. It says he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might what? redeem us from under the law. So it's not just he'll save us from our sin, hallelujah, but he will redeem us from being under the law. It's a status. The law, if you read Galatians, says the law was added. The law was something that, when God spoke to Abraham and said, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham believed God. He's counted as righteous. So God's arrangement with the human race was a faith arrangement. Believe, you'll be saved. Believe, believe. Then it says the law was added. Later on, the law came. It was added later. And the law said these are the requirements, and it was for a season, 
which Galatians talks about, that that season is now over. And Jesus died to redeem us from being under the law. That's what he came to do. He, how did he redeem us from being under the law? How did he do it? Well, he did it by having, if you like, two relationships with the law. The first one was this complete obedience and innocence. Jesus lived under the, he was born under the law. He submitted himself to all these holy laws that God had given in the Old Testament. At the end, the Bible says he was innocent. At the end, Jesus said, which of you convinces me of sin? They couldn't. He says, Satan's coming. He's got nothing on me. So he's totally innocent, pure, spotless. And then it says this, when he came to the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That on the cross, he took our guilt, he took our shame, he took all our sins upon himself, and God judged him. The law was vindicated. Jesus died in our place. Jesus was substituted. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. A ransom. He paid the ransom. He came to set us free. He came to pay the full price. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. The full curse of the law was carried by Jesus. The law is upheld. God says, this must be punished. Jesus said, I'll take the punishment. The law says, I require punishment for all these sins being broken. Jesus said, I will be that punishment. I will take it. And it says, he became that curse for us. So Jesus was crucified to fulfill all the law's holy requirements. And the Bible says, we were crucified with him. That when you put your trust in Jesus, it's as though you were actually present. You died with him. Let me see what Paul says in Galatians. It's all in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 19 and 20. It says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Paul is saying, as J.B. Phillips translates it, as far as the law is concerned, I may consider that I have died on the cross with Christ. Hallelujah. So you can't be condemned when the price has already been paid. When you were, you know, you've already been crucified. It's already been dealt with. It's in history. Our relationship with law is over because we have died with Christ to the law. It's a finished deal. The law is satisfied. The law has punished Jesus. It's vindicated. It's upheld. Jesus took the guilt. And when you come to Christ, you are included. You have to come to Christ. Not for everybody. It's not for everybody. You have to receive this. You have to say, I want that to be my own. I put my trust in Jesus. And these Galatians had put their trust in Jesus. They'd slipped from death into life. They'd, they'd believed all my sins have gone. Jesus died to take away sins. That's why he died. To take away guilt, to take away shame. That's why this holy son of God came to this planet. He came to lay down his life. And they've had their sins forgiven. The law's been upheld. They've experienced that. Hey, why do you then go back 
to try and justify yourself when Jesus has already done it. So when I was saying earlier, you know, you have to say your prayers and so on. I love praying, but I don't pray to impress God. So don't say to God, mm, 20 minutes this morning, Lord, pretty good, eh? 20 minutes? You impressed with that? You know, read a whole chapter this morning, pretty good, Lord. You know, I'm not trying to build up some credit because I'm in Jesus. I don't have to impress him. I've found someone who's already impressed him. And I'm hidden in Christ. That's the gospel, dear friends. We are in Christ. Everything that he did is accredited to our account. And so he was under the law to get us out from under the law. We don't have to anymore submit to that law. That's what it says here. And so Jesus died, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the law. The law can no longer condemn someone who's already been crucified. Hallelujah. It's already done. It's finished. That's, it's finished. We have peace with God. The price is paid. Have you accepted that yet? See, a Christian isn't someone who said, well, I come to church a bit. I, I'm trying to pray a bit. I'm trying to do these things. Now, a Christian is someone who said, I can't do it. I need to put my trust in what he did. And understand that when he said on the cross, it is finished. He really meant it. He's finished. He's done it. We can have a right relationship with him. So we're going to go right on through this verse. You see, it says, he died to free us from that being under the law. And then it goes on to another thing. It says that we might receive adoption. That's, that's the next theme in our passage we're looking at. That we might receive adoption. Now, there are some Bible words that are ever so thrilling. One of them is justification. Right? Justified. That's what happened through the cross. Jesus justified us. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's a legal word. It's like God is in the court. We stand before him guilty. Jesus said, I take your place. And he justifies us freely as a gift. It's great to be justified. It's great to sing some of our great songs and hymns. You know, before the throne of God, I have a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. It's like, it's wonderful. I'm justified. It's all done. It's finished. It's complete. It's wonderful to know we are justified. And, and so we love, we love the truth of a justifier. We're acquitted. We have a cleansed conscience. You have to lift your face towards God in the morning and say, Thank you, Father. Thank you, I'm justified. Not, oh dear, I don't think I'm so. No, no, I'm justified. God's declared it to be so. The legal situation is finished. He has said to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, I justify you freely as a gift. Hallelujah. No condemnation now, I dread. Everything's, justification is a legal word. It means all my guilt has been removed. I carry no more guilt. Have you received that yet? Have you received that yet? Oh, your guilt's gone. Oh, so wonderful. No, Paul says, I, I serve God with a clear conscience. It's wonderful to know you have a clear conscience. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. Hallelujah. Another word we love is redemption. He said he redeemed us. Redemption is a different word. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, a commercial word. 
And, and slaves could be redeemed. If a man was a slave, you could pay money so he's not a slave anymore. And Jesus said, I, I come to redeem. He said, I, I pay the price to, to ransom, to, to set us free from slavery. So our, our situation was this. Yeah, we were, we were guilty. We knew we'd sinned. Anyone who's honest knows they've sinned. But to have that cleansed and washed is amazing. But, but not only cleansed, but set free from the power of sin. The Bible talks about individual sins, specific things we shouldn't do. Don't steal, don't lie. But also talks about this principle that we have this kind of, we, we do this stuff. That's the way the human race is inclined. It's in us. It's like sin is a principle within. And we not only need our sins, plural, forgiven, we need this thing broken. It's a bit like the uh, Jews in the Old Testament that says that when at the Exodus, they had to hide in their homes when God said, I'm going to sweep through this nation with judgment. I'm going to kill the firstborn in every home. Pharaoh said, I'm going to kill all the firstborn Jews. God said, actually, I'm going to judge this nation. And the firstborn of every home will die. But if you take the blood of a perfect lamb, and it's all pointing to Jesus, you take the blood of a perfect lamb, put it over the doorposts, when the angel of death passes over, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. That's all you need, the blood. Hallelujah. It's not, it's not all those people inside that house are amazing. It's that the blood's on the door. That's the deal. You may even be trembling in the house. Oh, what's going to happen? But if the blood's on the door, God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over it. It's for God to see. God knows the value of the blood of the Lamb. He knows the value of the blood of Jesus. And he says it's enough. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to understand it. I just need to know God says that's enough. And so the the, the angel of death sweeps through, and all those who are hiding under the blood of the Lamb, they go free. It's wonderful. But then the story goes on. They're, they're going out, and then suddenly there's the Red Sea. And they can't, they're, they're shut in. So they're, they're cleansed and forgiven, but they're still in the land. They're still like slaves. And here comes the Egyptian army. Oh, no, oh, I'm still a slave. I'm not free. Then we read this. The Red Sea opens, and out they go. And not one slave owner gets through. They're actually free. They're actually free. And that's what we're taught in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 6. It says to us, we also died. We went down into a kind of death with him and were raised. And that's when we're baptized. When you become a Christian, you say, be baptized. Why? Well, we're, we're saying visibly what's happened to us. Our old life has died. And you get plunged under the water and you come up out like you've been resurrected, like a new person. If anyone's in Christ, new creation. And we act that out every time we do a baptism. It's not meant to be a little twinkling on the forehead. It's meant to be acting out what's happened. My old life has died. But I've been raised up. We've been set free from that power, that awful power that, bond, that just bound us. We couldn't help ourselves. We kept on sinning. We just can't, I can't get free from it. Jesus has set us free. Hallelujah. So redemption is wonderful. 
It's wonderful. Imagine you're in, the, you're in the, the court of law and the judge says, not guilty. That is my justice. That is my, that's my resolution. This whole thing, not guilty. Wow, I'm not, I'm not guilty. Or if you're a slave and they say, you're not a slave anymore. The price has been paid. Run off, you're free. But there's one more word, adoption. Justification, redemption, adoption. That we might, it says in this verse, we might receive adoption. J.I. Packer, a famous Bible writer, says this, the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher than justification. Because it's like the judge saying, you'll go free, and by the way, come home with me. I'll be your father. What? I not only say not guilty, I say, I'll be your father. Come home. That's adoption. That's the wonder. This amazing passage. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. It's breathtaking that we might be sons of God. We're brought into the family of God. Right into his family. It's amazing. So I can say, Father. It's not just, oh, thank goodness, I'm not guilty. I'll go and try and work out life. Well, thank God I'm not a slave anymore. I better go and try and... No, no, come home. Be my son. See, the Bible doesn't teach the fatherhood of all. The Bible teaches you have to come. As many as, many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. Have you received him yet? Have you stepped into this sonship yet? Are you sure? Can you say, God's my father? It'd be wonderful to go out of that door this morning and say, I know, it's, it's done. God's my father. That's what it's all about. And I, I just want to also fill in a bit more about this. Adoption is a beautiful thing. Many people are adopting these days. Now, in our culture, we usually adopt a baby, maybe a very young child. That's normal adoption. And it's a beautiful thing. We adopt children. They become our children. We raise them, maybe from tiny, tiny children. In this uh, culture, it was rather different. And Paul's using the metaphor of adoption. And it's in that culture. We need to understand how it was understood then. In that, they didn't, they didn't adopt, adopt babies. They adopted grown people. They adopted... I mean, you must have seen Ben-Hur by now. It's on every Christmas. So if you, if you haven't seen it yet, you watch it this year. It's a terrific story. And the middle of it is adoption, Jewish, I mean, big pardon, Greek, Roman style. But both the Romans and the Greeks, this was their style. Do you remember the story of, of Ben-Hur? Well, Ben-Hur, just to fill in the basics, he's a slave by a certain time. He's a galley slave. He's just working you know, in this boat. He's pulling the oar. He's going to die there. That's it. You, you row for the Romans until you drop dead. That's the end of your life. And so he's a galley slave. And he's, he's somehow impressed the captain of the boat, who happens to be the admiral of the fleet, who happens to be a senator. I mean, he's a big guy. And somehow this senator has kind of been influenced by him and undoes the chain of Ben-Hur. So he's no longer chained in. He's not kind of handcuffed in anymore. So he's rowing away. And then they hit this battle. And they're rammed. And the boat is smashed to pieces. But Ben-Hur 
is actually free. His chain's been broken. So he comes up on the ship and he sees the admiral, this great man, fall into the sea, dives in after him, rescues him. And, and this admiral, this captain of the boat, an admiral of the fleet, he wants to commit suicide. We've lost the battle, we've lost the battle. And Ben-Hur preserves him, looks after him, brings him through. And actually, although their ship had gone down, the other ships had not gone down. And it was a great victory. And when the senator, the admiral, goes back to Jerusalem, hey, the great hero, your fleet won the battle. And he says, I am adopting Ben-Hur. Not a little baby, a young man who has impressed him with his character, something about him he liked. You are now my son. So that you're no longer impoverished. All your poverty is gone. All my riches are yours. That's how it works. And actually the whole point of adoption here was to transfer all that you were to them. It's not about raising little children. It's about, hey, I'm going my, through my years. My years are being established. What's going to happen to all this empire I've built? What's happening to all this household? And you say, ah, this young man, he could look after it. I adopt you. All my stature is in you. You have my name now. All your poverty is gone. All my riches are yours. That's what adoption was like. And it, it's interesting that Julius Caesar... Amazing guy, incredible warrior, became emperor of, of uh, Rome, incredible man, huge. I mean, they won battle after battle after, he's greatly esteemed, wonderful guy. He's getting older, he has one guy, Octavian, who's one of his soldiers who he really loves and impressed. Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, he became the next Caesar. He's already a great soldier. Caesar adopted Octavian, Octavian becomes the next Caesar. He brought him into his family, adopted him into his family. Octavian adopted Tiberius. Tiberius adopted Caligula, whose uncle adopted Nero. They brought them into their family. Great guys, impressive guys. Now, Paul's using this word adoption. It's not about little babies. It's about bringing somebody in to inherit all that this person has won all that this person has accomplished, all the victory, all the title, all the status. So now Ben-Hur can swish through Rome, you know, like a great guy, because he's, he's now the son. It's, it's legal, it's binding. It's a legally binding adoption. You can't break it. It's interesting, I did some study on this recently, and one of these, I can't remember which of these emperors, I think it was Nero, he's adopted into a family, and the former uh, emperor had a daughter, who'd got no blood connection with him, and he fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. I said, you can't marry because you're her brother. He said, well, I'm different blood. Oh, no, no, no. You're, this is so legally binding that you can't. So they had to bring in another national law to make it possible for him to marry her. Because adoption is legally binding. It lasts forever, and you get all the, everything that's on, hey, you're adopted. It's legally binding, cannot be broken. Beloved, it's so wonderful to be a Christian. And no, it's legally binding. It cannot be taken from me. It's settled, it's done, that we might receive adoption. 
So Jesus came. We talk about Christmas. This is what Paul's saying. In the fullness of time, he was born, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive adoption. Not because we're worthy. It says because of his grace. Not because, hey, I'm impressive. I was anything but impressive. But God's adopted you and legally bound your child of the king. Pretty exciting, eh? To adopt as sons. So we are fully legally established, all debts cancelled, all resources inherited. Watertight legal arrangement. Change your status altogether. Now I did this. The passage we read, in the fullness of time he sent forth his son. So we've got a model of what a real son does. And he's adopting others. He's bringing many sons to glory. That's what's coming. Jesus comes to this poor world. His ultimate goal is to bring many sons to glory. Not just to save sinners. Yeah, save sinners, yeah, but he makes them sons. Brings them as sons. He's the firstborn of many brothers, the Bible says. We come as full brothers with Christ, and he shows how to live as a model son. So we we thought, how do you live as a son? Here's my son. Is my model son. And so we look at how Jesus lived as a son. And that he was perfect, he was innocent, but he always wanted to please the Father. And although he was under the law, you never feel, hey, this guy's a legalist. You read the stories of Jesus, you never feel this man's a legalist, but it says this I only do what pleases him. He shows us what it's like to be a pure son. So it's in the context of his sending his son, he adopts us into being sons. So we've got a great model. But it's not just the imitation of Christ. See, I think it was Thomas Kempis wrote this famous book, Imitation of Christ. But if it was only imitating Christ, it would kill you. Because, I mean, it's, how, can you be, how can you be that holy? How can I be? So, yeah, there's the model. I want to be like him. But then it says this marvelous last thing I must underline. It says, And because you are sons, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So it's legally binding. It's a legal thing. I'm adopted. It's established. It's settled. God's my father. Hallelujah. It's legal. It can't be broken. He's my father. But not only is my father, he sent the spirit of his beautiful son into my heart crying, Abba, Father. We have an experience. We enjoy the coming of the Spirit of God into our hearts. So it's not just trying to imitate a perfect um, example, but we have that Spirit on the inside. We have an energy that moves upon us. We find our preferences start changing. We, We find the way we think about things are changing from the inside. God's at work in us. To will and to do his good pleasure. We work out our salvation, but God's at work in us. We have another energy factor. We have a a power from heaven inside helping us to prefer righteousness than sin. Helping us to choose well. The fruit of the Spirit inside us. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness. says in Galatians 3.21, the law made nothing holy. Or it says in, Rome, in Hebrews, the law made nothing holy. He said, if a law had been given that could impart righteousness, then, then righteousness would come by the law. 
It's just like, let's go into all the schools. If the law can impart righteousness, let's go into the schools. Let's just say, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. That'll sort them all out. Just tell them, just tell them. But the law doesn't change anybody. It just says that's wrong and that's right. You shouldn't do that. And so the law just leaves me feeling messed up. This shows me I'm a sinner. The law doesn't impart any righteousness. That's why Paul's so angry that you want to add law. It's stupid people. It can't change anything. It just shows you you're a sinner. God instead has put his spirit in our hearts. And the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness. It all happens from the inside as we enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We have communion with the Spirit. The Spirit has come to live. The Spirit of His Son is in my heart crying, Abba, Father. I have a new motivational force. So God's grace teaches me to say no to all kinds of stuff. And the Holy Spirit energizes me. So God has done an amazing thing. He says, though, we're sons, and if if sons, then heirs. We inherit everything with him. It's all there in Romans 8, more of that. We inherit everything. And Paul in Romans 8 just paints an even bigger thing. He says, the whole creation is groaning. You know, there's all kinds of tragedy in creation. There's earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis. and The Bible uses this language. It's, it's, like, it's like the whole world. It's like a woman in travail. And there's pain that goes nowhere and there's pain that goes somewhere. And the Bible uses this phrase. It's like the whole globe is travailing. It's in agony. But why? To bring forth these wonderful sons of God, ultimately. That when he appears we shall appear with him. Even now we're the sons of God. Even now. When you go home to lunch, we go as sons and daughters of the living God. Hallelujah. But it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. The Bible has this now and not yet. Even now I am a child of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. When he appears, we should be like him. It'll be all done, the whole done. We will be sons inheriting all things with him. We inherit all things. Sons of God. So when we, you know, we look at little things like a, you know, a stable and a little baby and all this, and we, we can focus in on the tiny thing, which is fine. But behind the little things, this massive thing. God so loved the world. He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He had, he had to come right into it, take on human form. He had to get into our world under that law, to pay a price, bring us out from under the law that we might inherit adoption. We might be adopted as sons. Hallelujah. And because we're sons, we have the spirit of his son <laughs> in our hearts. We say, Father, Father, Father. God's great work. Beloved, this is for us as believers. God doesn't want to leave us as orphans. He wants us to know we're children of God. Maybe, maybe you're on the edge. Maybe you're looking in. Maybe you come to something like Alpha, and I know different churches do Alpha. You may be looking and thinking, mm, I think this could be for me. We just finished our Alpha at home. Some five people say, I want to be baptized. 
I want to I wanna take this on. Maybe this morning's your time for saying, I'm really going to take this on. I want to step into this. I want to know this wonderful thing. That I'm a son of God. All my sins are forgiven. And I've, I can call God Father. And I've got his spirit in my heart. Let's stand to pray as we finish. Father, we just thank you so much for what you've done for us. Lord, we, we confess we can sometimes live on the edges. We want the whole wonderful reality to captivate us. We want to live as those who are just amazed at what you've done for us, Father. To inherit everything with you. And Father, I just pray right now that you will Lord, bless your word to us. And I pray for any here this morning that, Lord, it might be their moment for saying, I want to seal this. I want to get this legally settled that I know I'm in. I'm not, I'm not wondering anymore. I know I'm in. I know I'm in. Maybe that's where you are. I just want to encourage you. Do, do speak. Speak to Adam. Speak to some of the leaders here. Can, I say to, can, can we just pray together? I'd like to get this settled today. Don't drift around the edges. Get it settled to know, hey, I really know God is my father now. I know all my guilt is gone. I'm not even under rules and regulations. It's all over. I'm through as a son forever. Father, I pray, just settle it, seal it, make it so real. I pray for your blessing on this church continually as we going to the Christmas season as we go into the new year, let your favor rest upon your church here. Let blessing abound. Let this neighborhood of Seven Oaks know the good news because they're there, because they know you, because your sons are walking the streets, your daughters walking the streets. Lord, bless us in this location for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.